honeymoon period, in, in maybe in marriage or in other aspects of life. Well, in Revelation, I think we've had the honeymoon period. We've had, a, we've had chapters 1 to 5. It's been okay. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty straightforward. Nothing too complicated. I think the honeymoon period's over. Um, so chapter 6 and onwards gets a little bit more tricky. So we do have to concentrate a bit and we do have to follow and, and pretty, listen pretty carefully as well. So I'll do my best. You guys do your best and we'll come out okay, I think, at the end. How about that? Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, we, uh, we thank you for uh, your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is alive today and reigning and uh, reigning in heaven. Lord, we thank you for that. We, we thank you that he's with us now. Uh, we pray that you would help us to understand your words, help us to listen well, help me to be clear. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to put uh, your words into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're also, we're not going to, we've got a bit of a packed program today, so we're not going to have a question and answer time as we normally do. Um, we'll do that next week, but what I encourage you to do, if you've got a question, then use the comment card that's torn off from the bulletin, put it in the white box at the back or the comment slip, and then we'll have a bit of a time before next week to answer some of the questions that people have written down and put in the box. Because you might have questions, and that's fair enough, that's actually a good thing. All right, so... Um, Bear that in mind. Okay. Well, let me tell you, it's a week before Christmas, 2017, so last year, hundreds of Christians had gathered together at Bethel Memorial Methodist Church in Quetta, Pakistan. They began as usual, much like we do, with songs and a prayer. In fact, this, today, this day was a little bit different because there was, um, uh, the, the kids had put together a Christmas play Towards, the, uh, towards near Christmas, a Christmas play was coming and this was the day to show it off. So there's a bit of anticipation in the air. The kids are all dressed up, so a few angels, there's always a couple sheep, you know, that sort of thing, uh, floating around and then, then there's a, a dog. I don't know if there were dogs there, but there, there was a dog all dressed up and ready to go. So it's an exciting day. Pretty normal sort of service otherwise. But despite the presence of security, and considerable security, about 10 minutes into the service, two armed men burst into the congregation, into the building, and opened fire. One with a machine gun, and the other was a suicide bomber. And when he got to the door, he detonated the bomb, and it exploded and causing devastation. Nine people died that day. 55 were injured. It was nothing other than targeted Pure violence, nothing other than that. Hatred, murder, death, that's what it was. Now as we open up the book of Revelation again, the words we read today were written to help Christians understand a world where this sort of thing happens. That's why they're written. Revelation, as the name suggests, reveals... So it's from a Greek word, apocalypse. You can see it there in the Greek. Um, it means unveiling, the revelation, unveiling. So as we read this book, a veil is lifted. Reality is laid out. Human destiny is revealed. Now you remember from last week, uh, if you're away, we'll try to catch you up a little bit, but you might need to go home and have a little bit of a read. But from last week, there was despair part of John's vision there was despair who would open the scroll 
John calls out in chapter 5, verse 2. Who would open the scroll? Who can make sense of all that's going on around us? Who can make sense? That's that's, that was questioned for the first century Christians. When they read this letter, what was going on around them was what happened in Pakistan in December 2017. Violence and persecution and death because of the testimony of Jesus. So who, who can open the scroll and make sense of all this? In short, the scroll was the will of God. So who then is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to reveal human destiny and let us in to the, to the will of God? The answer is, we see it in chapter 5, verse 9, the answer is the lamb, a lamb, a lamb who was slain. And that, of course, is Jesus, God's son. And by his blood, he purchased for God people from all tribes and nations and languages, a victorious kingdom. By his blood, he reigns victorious, we read. He is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to let us in to the will of God. He is worthy to make sense of it all. And so we want to listen to the lamb, don't we? Now, now before we, we pick things up... Um, at the beginning of chapter 6. We'll get to that in a minute. It's worth pausing and understanding just uh, a bit more about how this book is structured. It's a highly structured book because many of the mistakes that people make, and they do make a few mistakes reading Revelation, and there's some bits that are tricky, many of the mistakes are made when we read Revelation and they come out of a misunderstanding of this structure. Now, last week, remember, we noted that at chapter, or it's actually really two weeks ago, um, at 4 verse 1 marks the beginning of a long vision that John sees. It's John's second vision. There are really just two visions, or you could argue there are lots of little visions in the one big long one, but there are really two visions. One was uh, the, the churches, the seven churches, and Jesus' letter to the churches. That was a few weeks ago now. This next one starts at chapter 4 verse 1 and goes up to really the end of chapter 16. Uh, in that second one, there's lots of other visions. Now, so as human destiny is about to be revealed, what we find is that there are four sequences in this second long vision. Right, stay with me, it's important. So in this long vision that started at 4 verse 1, there are four sequences. You could, if you want to, you can call them cycles. Four cycles of visions in this big long vision. And these cycles deal with uh, tyranny, oppression, for example. Uh, that might be a better word. That's in chapters 6 and 7. Then chaos. Uh, that's in chapters 8 to 11. And then persecution, chapters 12 to 14. And destruction, chapters 15 and 16. Now, so I've tried to put this uh, diagrammatically for a moment. Okay, I hope this makes sense. These colours here mean nothing at all, but colours do mean something in Revelation. We'll get to that in a minute as well. Okay, now the thing to remember is that these sequences, these uh, visions that are part of the second big long vision, right, these sequences are not consecutive, okay? But they're, con they're concurrent, they overlap. So that's wrong, right? That's why there's a big cross there in the middle. That's not one how we should read them. So they're not a preview or a blueprint of history. They're not chronological. So trying to match up certain parts of Revelation with historical figures, that's going to end up in confusion uh, and making mistakes. John didn't write it that way. If you're looking for Hitler in Revelation, well, you're going to find him. You're going to find lots of Hitlers, actually. 
Gonna keep, we're actually going to find a Hitler today, I think. Uh, you're going to find lots of people like him. Now, what John does with these, so this is what it really more what it looks like. Okay? I tried to do the overlapping sort of concurrent thing with my boxes, and I'm not quite sure I nailed it. But you get the idea. They sort of overlap. Now, what John does with these sequences is that he separates them and examines them one at a time. You could say they are different pictures of the same reality. Now, the first of these uh, sequences, these cycles of visions that John pulls out and examines is what we're looking at today, chapter 6 and 7, what we call tyranny all right, or oppression. Okay, so that's, um, that's the, the right picture. There's the wrong picture. That's the one we want. Now, I don't want to confuse you too much, right, but I want to, I want to, there's one more part of the structure that I think is helpful for us to understand before we go into chapter 6. Okay, that is each sequence or cycle has seven parts. Uh, and you can see there, seven parts or seven little visions plus an interlude prior to the seventh. An interlude, a bit of a break. Now today, what we'll see is that chapters uh, six and chapter six are the six seals, seven parts, right, six seals, and then there's an interlude, and then there's the seventh seal. You're going to have to come back next week to find out what the seventh seal is, all right? Anyway, but you see there's six parts, and whether they're seals or trumpets or something like that, um, we'll get the trumpets next week. Six seals, an interlude, which often points us to heaven, and then there's the seventh seal. There's the structure, okay? Now, if I've lost you, come back, it's all going to be okay, all right? But it is important, particularly that picture on the left there, that's not consecutive, it's concurrent, they just overlap. So John's going to pull out one of those visions now, the top left one, the red one, tyranny. Okay, so... If you've got a question on that, you can ask me again later on. Let's look at these four horsemen. Chapter 6, verse 1. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's pretty hard not to imagine the Black Horsemen. If you've seen that movie or read the book, you know the Black Horsemen? They're pretty vicious. They turn up and they're scary. Uh, it's pretty hard not to imagine sort of that. These, the Black Horsemen bring evil and suffering in Lord of the Rings. I, I have no doubt that Tolkien was influenced by themes in Revelation. You can argue with me that later on if you like. Um, and those fictional characters in Tolkien's stories, uh, and like those fictional characters, I should say, in Tolkien's stories, these horsemen that we read in chapter 6, they also bring evil and destruction. But the problem is that these horsemen we read about in chapter 6, these seals that are opened, well, they're non-fiction. Uh, it's reality laid out. This is human destiny. Human destiny is revealed. So let's go from verse 1, chapter 6. I watched, that's John. In this vision, this very, very long vision, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. So we know, and we're used to this, we know that colours have significance. In, in life, don't they? Uh, it's not a surprise to us. So if I asked you, and I want an answer back here, please. I asked you, what, what do, and if you've been to 8am this morning, Joe, you've got to be quiet, all right? Um, if I asked you, what does the colour purple signify? What, what does purple signify in our life? Joy. 
Royalty. Thank you. There you go. I heard it from over there somewhere. Um, true. Well, is there, is, what, what are other? Are there other colours in our, you know, in our culture today that have significance like that? Can you think of one? Red mist. Red mist. What does that sort of signify? Okay, yes, yes, there you go, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yep, good. Another one? Come on. Green and jealousy. Ah, green and jealousy, there you go, yeah, yeah. So having colours that signify something is not abnormal for us. We can cope with that. And, and in Revelation, colours mean something. They have significance. So white in Revelation, which we've already seen a little bit of, indicates conquest. The first rider, when Jesus opens the first seal is bent on conquest. He's a picture of reality unveiled. So the first rider, bent on conquest. Warfare, he has a bow. Right? It's, a, it's a weapon of war. Um, and a crown, which points to his rule. That's the first rider. The second rider, the second horse, I should say, uh, the second seal, is red. Now, that's not too hard for us to work out, is it? Red blood, all right? Uh, the blood of warfare, which inevitably follows a white horse type person, don't you think, or a people. He takes peace from the earth. The third seal is opened and a black horse is told to come, goes. Uh, black, symbolising famine and deprivation. That comes next. How many times have we seen famine and poverty follow war and tyrannical rule? We see it all the time, don't we? And in verse 6, it seems like a tricky little verse, you can see that in your Bibles, but really it simply explains that in such times of famine and deprivation, food is extremely expensive. It's just hard to live. And that's all it's really saying. The final horse, the fourth seal, verses 7 and 8, is the colour of death, a pale, green and grey. It's not very pretty, is it? Many are killed, we're told, by this final horse, this seal being opened. Again, I don't think it says a quarter here is to be taken literally. The numbers in Revelation, we don't take literally. They're symbols like everything else. The quarter just means a lot, but not everybody. So it's a lot, but it's not everyone. So the, the, We'll leave it like that. Uh, what's described then are human disasters. The cause of these disasters are, are humans. And they're recurring throughout history. So... Genghis Khan, Pol Pot, Hitler, ISIS. That, that's what's being described, human disasters, evil and destruction because of humans. Even today, there's close to 100 conflicts going on across the globe. Although no doubt in John's mind is the oppression he and other Christians are experiencing in the first century because of the, of the war waged on Christians by imperial Rome. But let's notice two things about these four horses or these four seals that Jesus opens up. Let's notice two things before we move on to the fifth seal. Firstly, notice that permission is given from heaven, from God, for the rider to ride out. Did you notice that? There, heaven invites them, come, come. And the words was given are repeated a few times, aren't they? You see, the, the point is that whenever human tyranny reigns, it's not autonomous. In other words, whatever power it has, it has been given. The sovereign God has allowed it to happen. Remember, he's a picture of reality. 
unveiled. God has allowed it to happen. So in the midst of tragedy, God remains in control. Now, if you're listening well, that's probably going to open up a bunch of questions for you. It should. That's okay. Perhaps this second little observation will help, but those questions I think will be answered as we keep going through Revelation. The second little observation about these four horses or these four seals is that the four seals are really aspects of God's judgment. God allows them to go. God allows these horses, these these seals, be opened to go out. God is dealing with this world. He's dealing with the sin in the world. These are real. There are real and deadly consequences to sin even now. Again, probably opens up a bunch of questions. Uh, some of them are hard to answer. Let's go to the fifth seal. This cry of the martyrs. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Revelation says, has much to say about standing for Jesus. It says a lot to us about standing firm for Jesus, not being ashamed. An old-fashioned word, we don't use it too often these days, is witnessing. Revelation says a lot about witnessing for Jesus or testifying. That means speaking the words of Jesus to other people. And no doubt in John's mind are Christians then who have stood firm, who have made it to the end, uh, who have run the race and kept the faith, as uh, Paul uses those words, and they've lost their lives, most likely under the regime of Rome, for failing to worship Caesar as Lord and God, because Jesus is their Lord and God. They've stayed, stood firm because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. A Tacitus, he's a second century Roman historian, and he writes uh, about Christian persecution in the decades following the great fire of Rome. That was in the mid-60s AD, and Nero was the member at the time. He blamed the Christians for that, but most people now blame Nero for the fire. Anyway, this is what he writes about Christians and persecuted Christians. He writes, large numbers of Christians dressed in wild animal skins were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. It's gruesome, isn't it? But you know, what's the truth? What's the truth about those who have died for their faith in Christ? Under Nero, under Domitian, in Pakistan. Christianity Today reports that in 2017, over 10,000 Christians died for their faith. And in 2018, the numbers are pretty similar. What's the truth about those who have died for their faith in Christ? The answer, the truth is they are safe. Look at verse 11. They're secure, they're protected. What colour are their robes that they wear? They're white. White is the colour of conquest. They're victorious. They're reigning with Jesus now. 
But they still cry out. They cry out how long? How long? Not, not really for revenge and payback, but for justice and an end. When's it going to stop? How long, Lord? Notice they know that God is in control. And God's answer is, well, a little longer. A little longer. In other words, there's an end to the suffering of Christians today. There's an end. Like Christians in Pakistan or in North Korea or right now in northern Nigeria. There is an end one day to Christians suffering for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. God says there's a limit and one day he will bring justice. In fact, he describes the way he does that in a few moments' time. See, the message here is that faithfulness to Christ, even to the extent of death, is worth it. It is worth it. Faithfulness to Christ is never in vain. Never in vain. I hope we're hearing that. And many of us won't have our lives placed in danger because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's highly unlikely someone's going to burst in here with machine guns and blow us all up. <laughs> highly unlikely. Um, so we can, we can start to think, oh, yeah, this is a little bit irrelevant, isn't it? Really. That's not going to happen to me. That sort of persecution seems so foreign to us. It's over in Pakistan or in northern Nigeria or in, or in Nepal or wherever it might be. Not us here. But perhaps we are shown the extreme so that the smaller cases will be seen in their proper light. You know, a little bit of criticism, a bit of ridicule at work because we follow Jesus, a bit of ostracism because we refuse to get drunk. Well, that's what we do on Sunday. We go to church. Maybe even a loss of a friendship because of Jesus. Perhaps we are shown the extreme here in Revelation. So when the smaller consequences come up, because that's what they are, they're smaller, aren't they? They're not, we're not losing our life. Perhaps when those, smaller, those things are, when those smaller consequences appear, perhaps we're shown the extreme so that we can see those smaller consequences in their proper light, that they are small. And so that helps us to remain faithful to Jesus. All right, well, let's now turn to the sixth seal, the wrath of the Lamb. So as we turn to the sixth, the sixth seal, you wouldn't want to say that 20 times in a row, would you? You'd get in lots of trouble. It'd be very messy up front. Um, the sixth seal, got it. God's great judgment. The final judgment is described. So here is the justice that those martyrs in heaven have been crying out for. Judgment on those who are behind the first four seals. Now it's described in terms of an earthquake. Now I mentioned before that this area was quite uh, active when it comes to seismic phenomena. <laughs> uh, lots of earthquakes. It still is today. It's a pretty cool place to go and visit. We're looking at modern, basically modern Turkey. That's where these seven churches are. Uh, so the imagery would have been well understood by the people of the time. Perhaps John also had in mind, as he described this vision, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So that was AD 79. Anyone who lived in the world of that, in that part of the world at that time, such as John, would have remembered it. Massive. Although it was over in Italy, uh, Pompeii and so forth, over there, it was still well remembered. In fact, uh, uh, Pliny, who's another... Um, 
Roman historian. He was a governor, but he wrote a lot at that time uh, in the early 2nd century and late 1st century AD. He described his description of the Pompeii disaster eruption, sorry, the Vesuvius eruption on Pompeii, uh, sounds pretty similar to what John writes here in, in verses uh, 12 to 17. Anyway, so we won't read it all through now, but, but let's note a couple things. Have a look. Why do the people flee? So they, they flee, we're told, from the, but why do they flee? They go and hide in caves and mountainsides. I must have been, when I read this first, I thought, why would you go to a cave and a mountainside when there's an earthquake? That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Um, there's no answer for that. I don't think I'd go there. Anyway, there you go. That's what they do. They, they flee. And that's what people would do in those days. They'd flee to, to away from the cities and so on. But why do they flee? They actually don't flee because of the earthquake and then what's going on physically, environmentally around them. They don't flee. Have a look. Verse 16. Why do they flee? Why do they hide? Well, they hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's who they hide from. The one who opens the scroll. The one who controls all things. The sovereign God. The lamb who is slain, that's the one they hide from. So friends, what we see is, again is reality laid out. It's human destiny revealed and God is in control of it all. But the key question at the end of chapter 6, as the wrath of the lamb, the great day of God's judgment is portrayed, the key question is the final three words of chapter 6. Have a look at them. Three words. Who can stand? When God's judgment comes, who can stand? Who, who, who can stand through this? Who will be safe on that day? Well, now we have an interlude. <laughs> A little interlude comes along. And the answer to that question is answered in the interlude. We have to wait for the seventh seal. You can read it during the week if you like, but we'll look at it next week. But the answer is, who can stand? Well, it's the people of God. It's those who have remained faithful to the Son. They're the ones who can stand on that great day, on the judgment, on the judgment day. So let's look briefly at this interlude. We'll do it pretty quickly, to be honest. It has two parts, uh, verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 17. The... Uh, the, uh, it's the same reality, really, but two different ways of looking at that reality. The focus is the peace and protection, the safety of God's people. God's people are sealed. They're, they're his. If you picture for a minute, like a old-fashioned, but if old people used to wear, some people do today still, they wear a ring and it has their initials on it, like a signet ring. They post a letter, put a bit of wax on the back to seal the envelope. They stamp it, um, and that says that that letter is from them. It's theirs. They're sending the letter. They, it belongs to them. It's going out to them. So similar sort of idea. God's people are sealed. It's not physically a sign in their foreheads or anything like that. It's, a, it's imagery. It's a metaphor. Here, the metaphor tells us that God's people are his. He's got them. I've got you, says God. You're mine. You're sealed with my protection. You're safe. That's what it's saying. The 144,000, of course, it's not a literal number. 
Remember, we've talked about what the 12 means and what 12 means in different spots. So 12, 12 tribes of Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament. The 12 apostles, God's people in the New Testament. So in verses 1 to 8, the focus really is God's people, but the example given is God's people in the Old Testament. 12 times 1,000, 1,000 is just a big number, just a whopping great big number. Don't get caught up with that. It's just a big number. And so 12 times 12 is 144. That's good maths, isn't it? I did learn something at school. Uh, 144 times 1,000, 144,000. There you go. We can all do that. Excellent. Um, so it's just, a, it's just God's people is signified there in one particular way. Now, interlude part two is verses 9 to 17. And it's the same reality. It's just from a different perspective. Again, God's people are safe. They're secure. They're victorious. They're, they're gathered around his throne. It's a picture of final, the final fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham. Way back in Genesis, Genesis 12 and 15, if you want to read it for homework. God's people, uh, Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as, star, as the stars in the sky. That's promised to Abraham. And here we have it. God's people around the throne, safe, victorious, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Thousands upon thousands. Let's read from verse 9. Chapter 7. After, I, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude and no one could count. From every nation, tribe and people, language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. That's a sign of victory again in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all, all the angels were standing around the throne and and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. But how does this... Well, it's a picture of victory, conquest and so on. How does this victory come about? It's a fair question to ask, isn't it? How does it come about? Where does it come from, this victory? Let's read verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? John answered, sir, you know, I sort of like that. There's a bit of humour there. I think John's saying, mate, you're the expert. You tell me. I don't, I'm not going to say anything. Um, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. That's the six seals. Tribulation just means trial, right? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How does this victory come about? Well, they've been washed in the death of Jesus. Sin is defeated, death has lost its sting, and they have remained faithful to the Son, even under the threat of death. This interlude closes with a beautiful picture of life in heaven. Goodness and quietness in the presence of God, under the protection of God. Let me read it, verses 15, and 17, 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will, be spread, will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He would lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. Are you looking forward to that? Are you looking forward to it? 
Catch a glimpse of it today, won't you? And you will. Let's tie a few things together. Uh, Here is reality laid out. Human destiny revealed. The seals opened. It's not easy though, is it? It's not easy seeing this picture of reality. It is a great tribulation after all. A trial. But what is just as real is the goodness of God's promises. His faithfulness to his people. People such as those in Pakistan who just one week later in that same building that was trashed apart and gutted and blown up, they met for Christmas and they celebrated the birth of their saviour. Or people just like you and I, whose, well, our lives aren't threatened because we follow Jesus. Maybe today you might, God might put in your heart to go and be a missionary or your life might be threatened. That'd be great. We'll pray for you. We'll send you off. Um, but like you and I, we'll continue to stand for Jesus and we won't shrink back even though it may mean a bit of ridicule and a bit of loss. How about we pray? And uh, remind you, if you've got a question, there's probably a few might have come up, uh, write along the comments a little slip there and put it in the box and we'll have a look at it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Lord, thank you that you're a God who speaks. And even though today, Lord, some parts are a bit tricky and we've had to concentrate a bit, uh, Lord, we, um, we pray that you would instill your word in our hearts so that we'll come to know you more and more and trust in you more and more and we'll give all our life to you. Lord, we do pray for those who in this world today are being uh, persecuted for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. We pray particularly for those Christians in northern Nigeria who have been forced out of their homes, uh, many being beaten and killed even, because they love you. Lord, we pray that you keep them safe. We pray that you'd encourage them and lift them up. They would know your strength and they would read these words of revelation and know that an end will come and that you are in control. Father, we, uh, we pray that you'd give us, help us not to be ashamed of Jesus. Um, Lord, help us to be uh, great witnesses for you. Lord, thank you for this church and we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.